The fatal flaw is what FDA was saying is, if you don't have a randomized controlled trial or a longitudinal cohort study that follows the study participants over time and demonstrates that they're stopping use of combustible cigarettes or reducing their use of combustible cigarettes because they're using your particular flavored ends product, not just some flavored ends product, but your particular product, then that's it. We don't even, we're not even going to look at the rest of your application and you're done, marketing denial order issued, you're out. Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For years now, the U.S. vaping industry has lived on a nice edge as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration blundered its way through the implementation of federal vaping regulations. Last September, the fight appeared almost over when FDA issued marketing denial orders to over 300 vaping product manufacturers, thus requiring more than 5 million vaping products to be taken off the market. Almost immediately, vape companies challenged FDA denials in federal court and in a decision this past October, a three-judge panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals granted a stay to Texas-based Triton Distribution, allowing the company to continue selling its products while the court reviews the FDA denial order. The stay paved the way for dozens of other companies to challenge their denial orders, and more court action is on the way. Joining us today on RegWatch is Eric Heyer, partner at Thompson Hine, and the lawyer behind many of these court challenges on behalf of major U.S. vape manufacturers. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot go to go through. Let's start with FDA's marketing denial orders. Explain what they are and their impact on the industry. Sure. Well, the Tobacco Control Act uh, that Congress passed in 2009 um, mandates pre-market tobacco applications for any products that are uh, that were new to the U.S. market after uh, 2007. And um, as a result of the deeming rule, which uh, FDA uh, implemented in 2016, all ENDS products or nicotine, uh, tobacco-derived nicotine vaping products are now subject to this uh, PMTA or pre-market tobacco application uh, requirement. And so uh, those companies that had products on the market as of the time that deeming rule took effect were required both by FDA demand and by federal court order to submit those applications by September 9th, 2020. Um, and then uh, all of these marketing denial orders came just shy of a year later, um, primarily in late August, uh, September and into October of last year. And at this point, I think FDA has represented its um, issued marketing denial orders for something somewhere between 97 and 99 percent um, of the applications that came in, either marketing denial orders or refusals to accept or refusals to file, which are earlier stages in the, the review process for PMTAs. And that would you characterize as wiping out most of the independent market? Yes, it, it certainly has a, a really material adverse impact on, on the independent market. You know, there were a lot of concerns going into this ever since the time of the deeming rule for smaller and mid-sized manufacturers that don't have the financial resources that big tobacco companies have um, that couldn't do every possible theoretical study on their products that, it, that absent extremely clear guidance from FDA, that it was gonna be very difficult to successfully undertake these applications. And what we ended up with, this is a situation where not only what were some aspects of the guidance not as clear as they could have been, but now a situation where 
what was the industry thought clear, uh, FDA has done what the Fifth Circuit called a surprise switcheroo and changed up their expectations. So, so describe that for us. That it that was a result of the Triton case in October, correct? It, correct, and it's important to stress that um, that wasn't the merits decision. That was a, a, a decision on an emergency motion for a stay. Um, and there were three judges on the panel that decided that from the Fifth Circuit. Now, the merits decision is still, we're still waiting for that. We had oral argument two weeks ago on January 31st in front of a different three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit. But one of the criteria for um, obtaining a stay is the likelihood of success on the merits. And um, any applicant for a stay has to show a strong likelihood of success on the merits. And the, and the motions panel felt that we had crossed that threshold, that we had met our burden there. Now, I want to obviously dig into some of the details around the argument. Um, but first, let me ask you this. I mean, for how long have you been representing vape companies in the industry and why? Well, I've been uh, as as long almost as the industry has existed in the United States. Um, I was part of the team that uh, filed. In fact, I myself walked down to the clerk's office the very first e-cigarette case against FDA, the smoking everywhere case that then became known as the Satira case uh, on appeal before the D.C. Circuit back in um, in May of 2009, I think is when we filed it. And um, so I've been kind of eyeball deep in the industry ever since. That was obviously um, we filed that actually before the Tobacco Control Act even passed, and that was obviously, you know, quite a number of years before the deeming rule, um, but I've had, you know, um, pretty significant um, number of clients, you know, for quite a few years, really all aspects of this industry. So when you look at uh, the arguments that are working, is this just new, like, or have, you, have you finally found the argument that's working? Well, what I would say is, any litigation, um, and particularly this litigation, really depends on the particular facts with which we're, we're confronted. And here we have a, a really interesting, and in all of these MDO appeals, these marketing denial order appeals, interesting interplays between what's in the Tobacco Control Act, which sets out the framework for these uh, pre-market tobacco applications, and a separate statute that's been around since the 50s called the Administrative Procedure Act, which basically defines what sort of conduct by an, a federal agency is and is not legal. And um, so it's, it's an interesting interplay between those two statutes and, the, and they're sort of the sources of some of the different legal arguments that we're able to make given uh, what FDA did here with these, with these MDOs. What was it that the FDA did that put them, I guess, their, their decisions in jeopardy? Yeah, and I don't want to get too much into the specifics of any given case, but I'll say generally with respect to the, the litigation in general, with respect to these marketing denial orders, um, the issue is that prior to this deadline of uh, September 9th of 2020, FDA had put out a number of things that I think it's fair to say most, if not all, the applicants in the industry relied on. Um, there was a, a guidance, uh, there was a draft guidance, something like 55 pages long, that was first published in 2016 and then finalized in September of 2019, um, which was probably the most detailed uh, you know, document that was out there. There were a couple of um, public meetings that the, the Center for Tobacco Products Office of Science held 
um, explaining to stakeholders and potential applicants what the agency expected to see in the applications. And then there was a proposed uh, PMTA rule that, that set forth how the agency, what the agency expected to see in the applications and the process or the mechanism by which FDA intended to go about reviewing uh, the applications as well. Now that rule wasn't actually finalized before the applications were due um, because the, the deadline was accelerated. I think that, you know, my own personal belief is that had the deadline not been accelerated by court order, um, it's probably likely that that would have been finalized um, ahead of the due date because originally the due date for most of the products was supposed to be in 2022. Um, but given how things worked out with some of the other litigation, which FDA was embroiled, um, that's what happened. But even if it was a proposed rule, it was something that industry could look to to try and understand what FDA was looking for and um, and how it was going to go about reviewing these applications. So were the requirements uh, clear and achievable? What certainly was not clear, in fact, what was not existent, was this notion of what I kind of call in shorthand comparative efficacy, right? And this is sort of the crux of the litigation, which is this notion that if you have a non-tobacco or a non-menthol flavored ENDS product, and FDA applied this across the board to disposables, to cartridge-based products, into bottled e-liquids, that you had to demonstrate through long-term studies, studies over time following the same uh, subjects or participants in the studies, in the study, that that particular product was more helpful, more effective in promoting smoking cessation for combustible cigarettes than a tobacco-flavored product was. And the issue at its core with that, um, forget about whether FDA provided any notice to the industry, which it certainly didn't. But uh, an issue that I think um, exists with respect to that is when Congress set out the, the pre-market tobacco application standard in the Tobacco Control Act, the standard is, is it a, appropriate for the protection of the public health, or APPH as it's called, you know, in the industry. And um, this is a very different standard than the standard that applies in the United States for new drug or new medical device applications. As we all know, in this age of COVID, that's safe and effective, right? That the product has to be both safe and it has to be effective. And when you're talking about effectiveness or efficacy, that's for the labeled use or claim. Um, if it's a COVID-19 vaccination, it's going to help protect you against COVID-19 and the health effects, for example. Um, APPH, as the, um, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit found in the Nicopier case, going back you know, a number of years now, is intended by Congress to be a lower standard, not as demanding, um, than safe and effective. But what FDA has done here, and I sort of characterize it this way at the oral argument in the Triton case, FDA is applying um, a standard that's almost like the safe and effective standard on steroids, or if you think about it as efficacy squared, right? FDA is saying not only must these flavored ends products be, you must, must you make a showing that they're at a baseline effective in helping promote smoking cessation, but you have to show that they're above and beyond more effective than a, than a comparable uh, tobacco flavored product, right? And the 
the issue with that is that's not contemplated by the statute at all. It's, I don't think that was ever Congress's intent. And um, when Congress intended this to be a lower standard, and so you're sort of flipping the statute on its head and holding these products to a higher standard. And it's important to recall that manufacturers absolutely cannot make any sort of smoking cessation type claim with respect to marketing these products, because the second you do that, and this goes all the way back to that smoking everywhere case in 2009 that I talked about a moment ago, the second you do that, you're now in the drug bucket, right? So you can't make a drug claim, but you're held to a higher standard than a new drug is, and therein lies the issue. Right. So FDA is holding the industry, you know, accountable to a smoking cessation claim when they, the industry is prevented from making such claim by FDA. Right. And not only are you prevented from making a cessation type claim, you're prevented absent a, once you get a, a, a marketing approval order, a marketing granted order, you have to submit another application for a, what's called a modified risk tobacco product classification, which essentially you have to, the way you, that you, when you apply for that, you're asking for authorization from FDA to claim that, for example, your product doesn't contain tar or ash. It's some sort of a comparative claim against another tobacco product, not a drug, but another tobacco product. And so even that, you have to go through another hoop, another over another set of hurdles. Um, but that's still even in the tobacco product category. And so you can't even make those comparative claims absent that other further um, approval from FDA. So the notion that we're essentially going to apply something that's more demanding than a drug standard that would apply like to a nicotine replacement therapy to these products just because they're flavored when we already know that millions of adult former smokers rely on them on a daily basis is, I think, totally opposite of what Congress ever intended in the Tobacco Control Act. FDA painted with a very broad brush. They essentially have assumed for purposes of scientific review that any flavored product, any product that's not uh, tobacco or menthol flavored is going to intrinsically and inherently attract children um, and, and be overly attractive to children. And they basically said, we're not even going to look at marketing plans as part of these PMTAs because we don't need to, right? We can, we can just assume by virtue of the fact that they're flavored, that they're going to be so attractive to children that you have to show a, a compensating and offsetting benefit in terms of smoking cessation for adults. And that's painting with far too broad of a brush um, for them not even to look at not only marketing restrictions in terms of the types of the ways that products are marketed and the channels through which they're marketed, but access restrictions as well. Essentially, FDA is saying, we don't care if you only sell your product in an age-gated vape shop. We don't care if you only sell your product in a PAC Act compliant uh, online retail channel where not only do you have to check the, the, the age and ID verification of the consumer through a third-party independent database to make sure they're at least 21 before you consummate the transaction, but you have to have your, your delivery service go and um, check the ID of the adult and get their signature before you even hand the package over for them to say that that's, that has no impact on the likelihood of access to youth. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So the lack of review of the marketing plan, Triton's marketing plan, was kind of at the heart of the argument for the court case, correct? 
Yeah, and I, I don't want to speak specifically to Triton or any specific case, but I would say generally that's something that it appears that across the board FDA said. They said on the one hand, in every single one of these cases, we've seen enough marketing plans to know that for flavored products, it isn't going to make a difference. Yet think about that. If they said that in every one of these cases, what marketing plans did they ever review? <laughs> if they, right, if, if the conclusion was, We've reviewed enough to see it's not going to make a difference, but for and thus we're not going to review it. But for every single one, they say that. Which did they actually review, right? Um, so that, that's a question they've never answered, by the way. Well, if you look at what FDA says they've reviewed, they really said we haven't reviewed the marketing plan. So it seems like that really, other than their pre-existing belief or conclusion, that there's nothing an applicant can do to sufficiently restrict their products or the marketing of their products to keep them out of the hands of minors, that, uh, that's sort of a, an assumption that FDA is taking and taken into this process, it appears. And so that's the sort of the risk side of the equation, right? The risk to youth side of the equation. And then on the benefits to adult smokers side of the equation, that's where they claim that, well, we need these longitudinal cohort studies or these randomized control trials, which that's a drug study, right? That, that is exactly what a drug study is. And it also takes out of the equation the question of consumer desirability of the products. If you look at the types of products that FDA has approved so far um, and issued marketing granted orders for, um, you know, by and large, these are products that have no or very minimal consumer following, right? And if what Congress intended was for FDA to really move the needle, right, when it comes to the health harms from combustible cigarettes, you would think, would you not, that you want a product that's going to be attractive to consumers, that existing cigarette smokers are going to find desirable and to switch to. When you're running a randomized controlled trial, you're assigning a particular product to that, that study participant, right? You're taking that factor out of the equation as well. Um, so I think that's another problem with the sort of, you know, drug plus or drug on steroids approach that they're, that, that they're taking. It's looking at, again, it has to be a comprehensive review um, and moving the overall public health needle at the population level is not going to happen if you just have a bunch of products that, you know, I suppose may look good on paper, but that nobody wants to buy, right? And some of them aren't even marketed anymore. What is it from, say, the opinions that have come forward so far that carry across more than just one of these court cases? Right. Well, I would say to the extent that um, there were similar circumstances in terms of how FDA went about reviewing flavored ends product PMTAs as a whole, if for all of these applications, they basically said the same thing, for example, with respect to the marketing plans, that we don't need to bother reviewing it because it's not going to move the needle. Um, therein, regardless of the, the quality of the PMT and that, I, that, that seems to me to be a defect across the board. You can't, on the one hand, say we're going to do a comprehensive 360-degree review of each application on an individualized basis and then come back and say, well, um, there's only one thing that we're going to look at. And if that one thing is absent, despite how much the rest of the application may, may or may not compensate for that one thing or may speak to other considerations, we're not even going to, going to bother to look at that. Again, I don't think that's what Congress ever intended. And FDA itself has said that, that these were intended to be individualized, comprehensive reviews, not the so-called fatal flaw 
uh, single factor uh, determination that they could make in a matter of minutes or hours on, on any given application. So just for clarity, Eric, uh, please reiterate what the fatal flaw was that FDA was saying. Right. The fatal flaw is what FDA was saying is um, if you don't have a randomized control trial or a longitudinal cohort study that follows the study participants over time and demonstrates that they're stopping use of combustible cigarettes or reducing their use of combustible cigarettes because they're using your particular flavored ends product, not just some flavored ends product, but your particular product, then that's it. We don't even, we're not even going to look at the rest of your application and you're done in marketing denial order issued, you're out. So if I was to grab say three things here that appears that the court is starting to lean towards, one is that FDA has shifted the goalposts, correct? Certainly, FDA has shifted the goalposts after the fact. Certainly, yes. Right, and that, and then they're also not choosing not to basically they're blanketly refusing applications based on the absence of one particular thing that they have added in late in the game. Oh yeah, a absolutely. After the fact, I mean, <laughs> adding something through a secret internal memo that was written up. Um, let's see, you know, nine or 10 months after the applications were due. And, and the irony is too, and this is a point we made in our briefs uh, in some of our cases is um, someone posed the question to FDA when FDA took public comments on, the, on the, the PMTA rule. And someone said, well, isn't it unfair that there's a couple other earlier phases of review, the acceptance phase and the filing phase before you get to the scientific review phase. And someone posed the question, well, isn't it unfair to those companies that have already had to submit their applications before the deadline to impose a new requirement, say, for acceptance, right? Because you're, it's post hoc, you're doing it after the fact. How can you bounce their application based on something new uh, that you're putting in after the fact? And FTA said, to their credit, we agree, right? We agree it would be unfair to applicants to do that. But what did they do in practice, right? They did exactly that when it came to the need for these randomized control trials and longitudinal cohort studies. So clearly some of these arguments are persuasive in front of the court. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to pine too much on, you know, um, what I expect the courts to do or what they've done so far. But um, if we, you know, my hope is that we'll continue to see more merits decisions that are along the lines of the state decision that we received in, in Triton, and that, um, you know, that the courts actually go above and beyond what they've had to say about the lack of notice and the lack of warning of this new standard and actually engage on uh, this issue about FDA's statutory authority to do what they're doing, this notion of it being a drug standard versus what Congress actually intended for under the APPH standard, and that the courts will engage on that and, and hopefully provide some, some guardrails, I think, for this, this new area of regulation. It's, I mean, this is a, it's in its infancy. It's only, you know, 12 or 13 years old at this point, even younger than that when it comes to ENDS products. So it's going to be very helpful moving forward if we can get some guidance, you know, from the courts on exactly what is and is not permissible for the agency to be doing here. So what is exactly the remedy then that you're asking for? Well, with respect to, with respect to Triton, what we're saying is, and it gets a little bit complicated, is we're saying, um, look, if you agree with us that FDA lacks the authority to even demand this, 
then the agency has to go back to sort of the square one, right? To what people expected they were going to do before we had the surprise switcheroo. But if the court sort of gives us half a loaf and says, well, we agree with you that they didn't give you proper notice procedurally, this was defective, but they do have the authority to demand these types of studies. Then what we've said in some of the different cases is we've said, well, we would need time to go back and perform those studies because obviously no one knew ahead of time that they were required. And in some of the cases we've said, you know, it seems to be proper that FDA would have to go back through a notice and comment process and actually amend the, the final PMTA rule to add this because it's not there, right? And it is a new, in fact, what they said in the final PMTA rule is that there is no one sort of, for lack of a better word, fatal flaw, right? There's no one thing that it, for any, for all ENDS products or even a specific subset of ENDS products that is a, um, you know, necessary thing that you absolutely must have. And that's clearly what they've said in issuing these MDOs. So we've contended in a number of our cases that they, if they want to continue applying this requirement, they should be forced to go back and go through the notice and comment process and amend the, the final PMTA rule before they can go back and, and then give people opportunity to conduct the studies to satisfy it. Because the problem is when you're making policy and setting hard and fast requirements by press release, I mean, that's no way to regulate a, you know, a sophisticated industry like this. Um, and, and that's, unfortunately, what FDA has done up to this point. Let me ask you this, Justice Brett Kavanaugh weighed in on the Breeze smoke application for a stay. What was it that uh, Justice Kavanaugh said? Well, th- th- he didn't really say anything. <laughs> this is what I would say. The, the, um, that, was a, a, that was also a stay application that was denied by the Sixth Circuit. And um, the petitioner there appealed to the Supreme Court. Now, it's important to remember that when you have a a motion like that to the Supreme Court, because it is a Supreme Court, it's not automatic that they'll take it up. You have to petition for what's called certiorari. You need at least four of the nine justices to agree to take the case. So the motion was denied without explanation. It could be for a, a plethora of reasons. It could be that there weren't the four justices to agree to take it up. Um, it could be a point that FDA, I think, made in the briefing as FDA suggested, look, these are disposable products that were introduced in 2019. So they weren't entitled under the, the deferred enforcement policy that FDA has had in place to be marketed anyway, right? So what are they doing moving for a stay? I mean, that we, we don't know exactly what the court's rationale is. All we know are some of the arguments that were raised, but that could very well be part of it as well. So I would not read, um, and the other thing too is when the court, when the Supreme Court decides whether to take cases, sometimes they'll look at is there a, what we call a circuit split, right? If the Fifth Circuit in Triton is held one way, and the Sixth Circuit in that case said, well, we don't agree with that logic, at least with respect to the case in front of us, you know, maybe that starts to be the beginnings of a circuit split. Um, but there's also a laundry list of reasons as to why I think the cases are, were distinguishable coming out of the circuit courts. And usually when the Supreme Court takes on a case, they want a a very well-developed and mature circuit split. And certainly that wasn't the case here. It wasn't like we had four circuit courts on one side and three on the other, right? Um, And so there's a, we don't know at the end of the day, the reason why they didn't take it up, um, but I would not read anything significant 
into that really one way or the other could have very well just been a decision not to take up the case because it wasn't sufficiently mature um, in terms of what happened in, in the court below. So with what you've got going uh, and the other cases that are happening, I mean, what can you say in terms of, you know, foreshadowing for the consumers out there that, you know, are hoping that vaping products stay, you know, accessible? Yeah, well, what I, what I would say is, um, and I've said this at some conferences and that in the past, um, even if all this litigation is unsuccessful, um, FDA has at least in theory, and I will stress and underscore in theory, <laughs> the notion that there is a potential pathway here for flavored products, right, um, to, to get to the market. And I've had a lot of discussions myself with some of these scientific advisors and consultants about you know, how in theory they think maybe this could be done to try and make this showing. Um, and it certainly, you know, would not be cheap. Um, but there, there's that, um, you know, it, it's not, it, it right now seems to have the same effect, but it is not exactly the same um, in terms of how it's approached as, say, a statute saying that all flavored ends products are banned, or even what we call a tobacco product standard. Now, we've certainly made the argument it has the same effect, that they're, they're sort of backdooring the notice and comment process, the procedure that they need to go through to do that. Um, but such a tobacco product standard would, across the board, um, definitely prohibit, as opposed to even leaving this theoretical pathway to getting approval for products like that. Um, so I would say to the consumers out there, you know, don't lose hope. <laughs> we have a lot of cases going on in terms of the immediate future. Um, the brief smoke appeal has now been voluntarily dismissed. Um, and so we never know exactly when a court is going to rule. Um, it's up to the judges in terms of how long it takes for them to write the opinion and to, and to kind of push it out the door. Um, but it appears that it's going to be quite a while yet until the next of these MBO appeals has oral argument. and. Uh, the opinions, you know, almost always come after oral argument. They're not usually taken on the papers when it's a new issue like this. Um, so I believe at this point, the next one is probably not going to have oral argument until sometime in April. And so it could very well be the case that in the next six weeks or so, we do get a decision out of the Triton Court, out of the Fifth Circuit, uh, and, and see what happens. And I think, you know, similar arguments, we're certainly advancing similar arguments on behalf of our other clients in the other circuits where we've got cases. I think the other firms that are, you know, representing their clients are advancing similar arguments as well. So hopefully what we will see is a unanimity of decisions that all come out the same way and say, not only was FDA perceived, was it procedurally defective in terms of what FDA did here with this surprise switcheroo after the fact, but that FDA lacks the, the statutory authority to even demand the sort of drug type study um, and, and drug type evidence. 